Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information, head to calvarystgeorges.org. Well, you heard it just a second ago. We are in our third week of three weeks of looking at the Sermon of the Mount. And looking at this text, disconnected from the others, you might wonder if you really like the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talks about lust. He talks about anger being equivalent with murder. And then he talks about what many of us have had to deal with in our lifetimes, divorce. Maybe those 19th century Enlightenment thinkers who said that the Christian Revolution was a mistake were not so very off after all. You remember Edward Gibbon, the great writer of the history of Rome, who claimed that it was Christianity itself that led to the downfall of Rome. He said, the triumph of Christianity has led to an age of superstition and credulity. His partner in crime over in France, the great philosopher Voltaire, he said this, and this is a direct quote, Every sensible man, every honorable man, must hold the Christian sect in horror. These are strong words, but if they're on to anything, well then what the heck are we doing here this morning? Notice these men are not saying that Christianity is outmoded or old-fashioned. They are arguing that the faith is morally repugnant. These two and others of the Enlightenment Project sought to recover the long-forgotten pre-Christian classical values. And there's this contemporary historian by the name of Tom Holland. He recently wrote a book that the clergy are all reading here at this church. It's called Dominion, and it's about that very thing, the rise or the triumph of Christianity. And he argues, or he says, that He felt much the same as Gibbon and Voltaire did until very recently. In fact, he gives a little anecdote about how when he was six years old, he went to Sunday school and was reading one of those children's Bibles with all the pictures, and he saw the story of Adam and Eve. And in that story, right beside Adam and Eve was a dinosaur. But to precocious young Tom Holland, he knew that Dinosaurs and humans did not occupy the same time. They were not around at the same time. And he was indignant. He went up to his Sunday school teacher and said, you need to change this book. But he said the Sunday school teacher, much like probably any overwhelmed teacher would say, was like, okay, let's let's just get past this. I don't really care that much. But to someone like Holland, this was something very important. We are leading people astray. We must change this. So rather than coming to the conclusion that Christianity is something that's nice, and we like some of the morals, but it's old-fashioned, he came to believe as well. Christianity is problematic, both intellectually, but also morally. And he writes that he felt this way until just three, four years ago. He came out with an article in the New Statesman, and he wrote, the title of the article is, Why I Was Wrong About Christianity. And he said, 
that the way he found out that he was wrong about Christianity was doing what he loved, reading about those more interesting gods of the Greeks and the Romans and those of the Far East. He said that upon reading and doing in-depth research on the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, etc., in fact, he's written books on all of them, he came to see that though these civilizations are glorious, they're incredible, they're also callous and infinitely grotesque. He said that the moral systems of these ancient civilizations, in these moral systems, ethnicity is paramount. Brutality is rampant. What's more, in each and every one of these civilizations, the weak and the poor have no intrinsic value. I'm not here today to hate on the great ancient civilizations. In fact, in another lifetime, before I thought about becoming a priest, I really wanted to be a historian, wearing a tweed jacket, talking about the Greeks and the Romans. And I first came upon this, I read Plutarch's Life, Life of Alexander the Great, and it overwhelmed me in a way that it did for Holland. So again, there are great things about the ancient classical civilizations But just like what Holland says, when you do real in-depth research, you find that the values then are very different than the values that we hold dear. One example I'll give you is this. The great Julius Caesar, whom we all know and love, we all learned about in college, we all read about in the great plays. When he conquers Gaul, the war is over, and he decides, I'm going to slaughter one million people. Of these people, brutally slaughtered them. And the people of his day saw nothing wrong with this. And why is this? Because these were the defeated. These were now slaves. These were the weak. And the weak have no intrinsic value. You can see how why later on in that enlightenment period when people start to talk about might making right, that truly is a recovery of classic values. So interestingly enough, Holland argues, um, and he's not the only one to argue this now, that despite how great Gibbon and Voltaire are, and they are great, in fact, Voltaire talks about taking care of the poor in a way that few of his time ever did. He had a deep concern for the weak. But Holland says that they were not successful in recovering pre-Christian values. In fact, both Gibbon and Voltaire were very much steeped in and indebted to this Christian moral thought. Holland goes on to say that the person who really did recover pre-Christian values was somebody who wrote a hundred years later, a German philosopher by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche. You remember Nietzsche. If you remember anything, you remember the Superman. He, right, he called Christianity a slave morality. The concern for the weak and the poor was what was holding the spirit of the age back. This sounds a whole lot more like Julius Caesar than Voltaire did. And notice the people group of the 20th century that most took hold 
of the pre-Christian values, of the ideals of Nietzsche, were the ones we've been trying to do everything we can to get away from. The Nazis, right? Think about two of the chief Christian values that they rebuffed, that they wanted nothing to do with. The weak have a claim on the strong, the poor on the rich, and the other great one that we get from St. Paul. There is neither Jew nor Greek, male or female, slave or free. Essentially what he's saying, there is no ethnic superiority. And this brings us all the way back to the Sermon on the Mount that we read today and that we've read for the past two weeks. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount begins with that inverted value of its time. This was a scandal for its time. We're so used to it that it's not a scandal for us today. Blessed are the poor, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. Think about Christ himself, crucified on the cross, becomes poor, becomes weak, becomes so repugnant that we have to kill him brutally outside the city gates. This is what Christian values were. Holland argues that these were the two values of chief importance. I'm going to say it again in case you lost it. The weak have a claim on the strong. There is neither Jew nor Greek. When we look at laws like today, we, we see them and we find them very hard and very difficult. But at the end of the day, I think they're worth keeping. We all know what anger can give rise to. We all know, especially today, the rise of this Me Too movement. I don't know about you, but I live in New York City, and I can't help but objectify people, whether it's because they're poor, whether it's because they're attractive, and I think that's true of you as well. What Jesus is giving us in the Sermon on the Mount is a picture of the kingdom of God. What we would like it to look like now and what it will look like when he comes again. The poor and the weak will have their value and it will be recognized. Whether you're a man or a woman, you are no longer going to objectify members of the sex that you are attracted to. Taking even a look further, there will be a day when you will be reconciled with that person who hurts you or whom you hurt so very badly. But at the same time, while I think all of these laws are good, and I will echo with Fleming Rutledge, who I bring in on occasion, she once said, I long for the refiner's fire. And I was terrified by that when she said that at first. But when you think about it, she's right. I long for the day that I don't return to my own vomit. When I stop hurting the very people I say I love the most. When I stop doing the very thing I condemn in other people. But the third value that the the rise of Christianity or the triumph of Christianity has given to the world, 
that I think Holland underplays is this value of the great mercy of God toward undeserving subjects. When we say that tagline, enjoy your forgiveness, what we're saying is we're all about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one-way love of God for suffering sinners like you and me, the people who fall short of giving intrinsic value to the weak and the poor, the people who, if we're honest with ourselves, I don't care where you're coming from, but you walk these streets and we all, at one point or another, start to think that a certain group is better than another. And we try to avoid that at all costs because it's horrific to us, but we all do it. We all fall short. And on top of all that, we all objectify our fellow image bearers. And this is why, if we've all fallen short, if we're all coming to this table needy beggars, the greatest value the triumph of Christianity has given to the world is this notion of radical pardon, radical mercy, that God is so for you, that he's so for me, that despite everything, he is moving toward you. Despite all the things that you're aware of that you're doing wrong, and even the things that in the last day will be revealed that we will be horrified by. The one-way love of God is this radical gift that we have not just for ourselves, but for the world. So I don't know what you've come here with this morning. I don't know if you've come with pain or with regret. Whether you've hurt someone or you have been hurt. The message of the gospel is that all of this shall be made right. But what's more... And what's radical is that our Lord is for people who have not done right, who have hurt. We will be forgiven. We will be made right. This is the best news of all. So friends, as we come to this table, you don't have to pretend like you live up to a certain standard. In fact, the moralisms that we encounter today seem to be, have no mercy to be merciless. But the gift of Christianity is that it upholds the law. It upholds the fact that the poor have intrinsic value. It upholds the fact that there is no group that is better than another. That we're all in this together. But the climax of all of that is despite everything, despite the history of humanity and what we've seen. Nevertheless, God in Jesus Christ is moving towards us. So we approach the throne, we approach the table boldly because we know that our God is the one who, in the words we'll say in a minute, his property is always to have mercy. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast, produced and recorded at the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of the parish, you can make an online donation at calvarystgeorges.org 
slash giving. Thank you.